Thank you for listening to the Lucy Baptist Church podcast. To learn more about us or to find other sermons and resources from us, visit our website at lucybaptist.com. Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 139. If you want to be turning there, it will be on the screen. Psalm 139. We will read the entire chapter. Good to hear pages turning. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before me and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me, be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet, There was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting.
Well, amen. Let's uh, let take a moment and pray and ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and for the worship that um, um, the songs that have been selected and, and the praises to you, your name. Lord, I pray you would help us to consider your son Christ, to consider you and to consider your word, your ways, Lord, your kingdom. And Lord, I pray you would help conform our minds, our worldview, our hearts, Lord, to that of your kingdom and not our own making. So Lord, I pray you'd have your way among us this morning as we consider this uh, topic and we consider this psalm. Lord, I pray you'd bless the preaching of your word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to begin our series on contemporary issues, and uh, we'll be considering contemporary issues from a biblical worldview. And this morning, we'll be considering the topic of the sanctity of human life, which we've already heard a lot about. Um, And along with this important topic, we'll also consider its loudest critic, namely uh, abortion. So with that, um, to set the stage, here are a selection of headlines from the past year. Quote, Planned Parenthood President Lena Wynn, abortion is our core mission. New York passes law allowing abortions at any time if mother's health is at risk. Senate blocks bill on medical care for children born alive after attempted abortion. California sues Trump administration over rules restricting abortion access. Abortion poll, most Americans oppose fetal heartbeat laws, closing of all clinics in a state. New York City allocates $250,000 for abortion, challenging conservative states. Ohio ban on Down syndrome abortion blocked by U.S. Appeals Court. Abortion, medication to be available at California's college health centers under new law. Planned Parenthood to open reproductive health centers at 50 Los Angeles high schools. New York pressures OBGYNs to perform abortions or leave medicine. That was within the past year. Not the past five years, just within the past year. Uh, That last one being uh, just about a week ago. And if that were not enough to help us start thinking about this difficult topic, consider a uh, New York Times interview with Dr. Willie Parker, who uh, a couple paragraphs from the interview is this. Quote, I believe that as an abortion provider, I am doing God's work. Parker writes in his new memoir, quote, Life's Work. Quote, I am protecting women, women's rights, their human right to decide their futures for themselves and to live their lives as they see fit. Since childhood, Parker had been taught that abortion was wrong, and for the first half of his career as an OBGYN, he refused to perform abortions. But then he had what he calls his come-to-Jesus moment, an epiphany that his calling was to help women who wanted to end their pregnancies. It is not uh, without saying that we live in a culture and a world that is confused and marred with sin and brokenness. We live in a culture that celebrates both gender reveal parties and shout your abortion t-shirts. Places where you can buy, thank God for abortion, foam fingers. A culture that prizes both motherhood and the right for an abortion. Where ultrasounds are a tool to help us see little fingers and toes. Or a tool for abortionists to remove unwanted life. The underlying issue to these this conclusion is, uh, or the confusion in our culture is not just a lack of morality. It is that, but it's also opposing worldviews. 
One worldview sees one of the chief societal goods is to protect all human life from womb to tomb. And another worldview that places so-called reproductive health and sexual freedom above the life of the most innocent people in our society. Not just different moralities, different ways of even viewing the world. And so this morning, my chief aim is to build a foundation upon which we can establish a biblical worldview. So we'll do this first by asking the question, what is a worldview? But then secondly, we're going to dive into Psalm 139 that's been read, where we can grasp a Godward vision for the sanctity of human life. And then we'll we'll close with considering the end of the psalm as well as some more consideration on the topic of abortion. So first, let's ask the question, why on earth is a worldview? Because I, I imagine for many of you, this is probably the first time you've heard this, uh, that term and you may not have thought about it. Well, first thing, everyone has a worldview. Everyone. Even if you realize it or you don't. From Bo Ferguson to Miss Maxine McCarter, everyone has a worldview, regardless of your age. And a worldview is simply this. It, it's a way in which we see the world around us. It is our set of our beliefs and our convictions, our hopes and our dreams. It's our fears and our worries. A worldview can be true or false. We can hold it consistently or inconsistently. It's something that we can memorize and articulate very carefully or something that's just the background noise as we float through life. To put it more simply, it's the foundation by which you live. That is a worldview. It's a lens by which you view the world. And with that, I think one of the best illustrations is that of glasses. And it's so fortunate that I got glasses about a year ago. So if I take off my glasses, Roger in the back is very fuzzy. (laughs) So I see him wave, but (laughs) I can't make out his features. If I put my glasses back on, I can see Roger really well and I can wave back. So, um, worldviews determine how we see the world and therefore how we interact with it. It shapes our actions. The way you view the world determines how you live. It determines things like how we, who we follow on social media, how we treat our employers, or in this day and age, to whether or not a mother will celebrate a gender reveal party or shout her abortion. Therefore, worldviews are also a way of living. And again, everyone has one. But the good news is that worldviews can change. And the most significant change that happens to any worldview is salvation. Indeed, the gospel changes everything. It changes how we live. God is not just pleased in sending you to heaven, but but changing everything about you to make you look more like Christ. And therefore, have the same worldview as of Christ. And so with this series, we're going to consider our worldviews, the foundation by which we live, how we interact with the world, and how we make decisions. And the only way to shape our worldviews is to look at Scripture. It is in God's Word that we find a stable foundation with which to build our lives upon and to navigate the hostile culture around us. And so with that, your Bibles are turned to Psalm 139. Let's look at it. So in this beautiful psalm, we find rock-solid theology to stake our life on. It's an incredible testimony of God's attributes. But not only that, we also find moving passion. It's a psalm after all. And this psalm communicates both to our heads as well as to our hearts. 
communicates to all of us. And even though it's deeply theological, it is immensely practical. In this hymn, there are three characters. You've probably already seen them. There's God, there's David, who is the psalmist, and there are wicked men. Throughout this psalm, David articulates three major attributes of God. So first, we see his omniscience. It's a big word, and it just means this. God knows everything. But secondly, we see his omnipresence, another big word, and it just simply means God is everywhere. And thirdly, we see his omnipotence, meaning God is all-powerful. And at the same time, David separates himself from wicked men and desires that God would know him and search him intimately and lead him into the way everlasting, the same path that is followed by all of God's people to everlasting life. And so using these three attributes, I want to walk through the psalm and see how we can use those attributes and get a Godward vision for practical living and principally today for the sanctity of human life. God's omniscience. So first, David would have us understand that God knows everything. So consider the first verse. It says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Notice that these verbs are in the past tense. David is not asking for God to search him. He's not asking for him to know him. He's acknowledging the fact that God already does this. He has already searched him and already knows him. Now notice at the end of the psalm, David does ask for God to search him and to know him. And in that way, it's a, it's a wonderful bookend for the for this psalm. But here, so how does God search and know someone? So David acknowledges that God does this, but how does it work? Well, verses two through three explain. It says this, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Notice the parallelism. God knows and he searches. God knows when David sits and he searches out when David lies down. God knows when David rises up and he searches out his path. God knows David thought, David's thoughts and he is acquainted with all of David's ways. The point? God intimately knows David. And by extension, God intimately knows you. He knows everything about you and I. Verses four and six emphatically make this point. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Before we speak, God knows. God knew the words that would fill this sanctuary before I knew them and before I spoke. Parents often wonder whether their son or daughter will say mommy first or daddy first. Well, God knows. God knows our first word and he knows our last one. David, reflecting on God's omniscience, realizes that he can't escape. For the Lord has hemmed him in on all sides. We too must realize that God has us hemmed in on all sides. And just like David, this knowledge is too wonderful for us as well. No matter how sophisticated our technology becomes, we can't have the same all-knowing power that God does. 
And neither can we fully comprehend how God knows all things, the depth of his knowledge. We can merely confess it and believe it. A.W. Tozer writes about God's omniscience in this way. He says, quote this, uh, because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor, except when drawing men out of their own good, does he seek information or ask questions. The point is that God knows everything. And for God's people, this is a wonderful and it's wonderful fact, and it's worthy of being rejoiced about. After all, all people desire to be known and loved. And to recognize that God fully knows us and fully loves us in the gospel is divine. And it's wonderful. But for those who are far away from the Lord, God's intimate knowledge of, of you might be a hard pill to swallow. Hebrews 4.13 says that, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows you. And again, Tozer writes about this uneasiness. Quote, In the divine omniscience, we see set forth against each other the terror and fascination of the Godhead. That God knows each person through and through can be a cause of shaking fear to the man who has something to hide, some unforsaken sin, some secret crime committed against man or God. Perhaps this is why for those who advocate for abortion, they do so so fervently. The thought that God knows the murderous actions of abortionists and would-be mothers is enough to harden hearts towards rejection of God and his ways. So as we are thinking about our own worldviews, resolve to put at the heart of your being that God knows all things and more intimately, God knows you. And although David is not writing this psalm with abortion in mind, we would do well to remind others in the culture around us that God does see Just as he knows our words before we speak them, he also knows every intention of would-be mothers that walk into Planned Parenthood clinics. God knows. God does see. But secondly, we see God's omnipresence. We need to consider that God is everywhere. And so David turns this psalm to consider this truth. Notice verses 7 through 10. Quote, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Notice that David asked these several questions. He's asking how can he escape from God's presence? Where can he run? And the question sets up these several answers that all boil down to the same response. Nowhere. There's nowhere you can run. David says that if he were to ascend to heaven, God's there. So if he goes as far up as he can, he's there. And if he were to go down to Sheol, that is the place of the dead, God's still there. The point is to say that God is everywhere. But what if you could outrun God? He's, maybe he's everywhere, but maybe he's not fast. So maybe you can outrun God. David's praise continues with this thought. He uses a beautiful phrase. He says, if I take the wings of the morning, 
The idea of this phrase is, if one could take up wings and fly with the swiftness of dawning light. Have you ever catched the sunrise? As soon as it pops up over the horizon, light. Light's pretty fast. So David is, is, perhaps David could fly at light speed across the ocean. Maybe then he could outrun God's presence. But as we read, even with light speed, God still guides and holds David. David can't escape God by going up or down. He can't go east or west, even at the speed of light. God will always be wherever he is because God is everywhere. He, and God will be wherever David is, guiding and holding him. But, okay, what if David is hidden? Okay, so you can't go somewhere where he's not and you can't outrun him, but maybe he can hide himself. Notice verses 11 and 12. It says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Again, God is there. Darkness cannot hide someone from his sight. God sees. So just like with God knowing all things, God's people can take great comfort in knowing that God is always with us. Is this not what Jesus said at the end of the Great Commission? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ holds us fast. But for those who are far away from God, there is nowhere you can hide. God is in in the delivery room as well as the abortionist office. There is no place in our lives where God exits the door, so to speak, so that we may make decisions apart from his knowledge or his sight. Every decision that any of us make either embraces God in his ways or rejects God in his ways. So let's resolve that at the heart of our worldview, we fully recognize that God is everywhere. And let us, as believers, resolve to live all of our lives before the God who is there. And if you are an unbeliever today who is far from God, recognize that God sees you, he knows you, And that you can come to him, repenting of your sins and trusting in his son. But thirdly, uh, God's omnipotence. We pick up in verse 13. So in this section, we see that God is all powerful. So powerful that he alone is the author of life. He alone creates and sustains life. And so now we turn to some of the most relevant verses for us considering the sanctity of human life. David now begins to praise God for creating him. And so as we consider this beautiful praise, let's notice that God is personally involved in creating people, and he also creates people purposefully. So first we see God personally creates people. How does he personally create people? Well, notice verse 13 and 15. It says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And then verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. David is declaring that just as he cannot escape God's knowledge or presence outside of the womb, he also can't escape God's knowledge or presence inside of the womb. Who made David? God did. And although we have ultrasounds that give us a fuller picture of what happens in the womb, In the Bible's time period, the creation of 
uh, boys and girls in the womb was looked on with a bit of mystery. Uh, Ecclesiastes 11.5 says this, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. But nonetheless, these verses here just give us a faint picture of what's happening. And so David writes that God forms his inward parts. I prefer, that's the ESV, I prefer the, the New English Translation's rendering of that verse. It says this, Certainly, you made my mind and heart. You see, the Hebrew word for inward parts communicates that part of a person that contains character. It's a word that describes both, excuse me, it's a word that describes both emotions and morality. At this point, David is not concerned about anatomy. He's not concerned about the creation of bones and tissues. He's declaring that God created him, his character, his personality, in the womb. The current conversation of when life begins in the womb is irrelevant in this clause. David here praises God for creating him. But we also see God is the one who knits him together. So just like a masterful artisan, God takes David's joints and ligaments, his bones and muscle, and he works them together, creating him. And so here we see God is personally involved in the actual formation of David's body the actual formation of my body and your body in the womb. So David continues that idea in verse 15, the stress that his frame was not hidden, from, wasn't hidden from God. And so although no one in David's time could see what was happening in the womb, God could. He could see exactly what was happening. God is personally involved in the creation of people from conception to birth. But secondly, God purposefully creates people. So how does he do that? Well, verses 14 and 16 illustrate that. So verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David's praise of being fearfully and wonderfully made echo Psalm 8. So in Psalm 8, verses 3 through 4, says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. God's chief creation is not any animal that roams this earth. God's chief creation is people. God creates man into his image and bestows upon him his image bearers with glory and honor. God's creation of people is wonderful, and we are the crowning glory of God's creation. You see, God determines to have a world of people that bear his image. And although we reflect his image poorly because of sin, nevertheless, each person has dignity and value because God purposefully creates us. And then, meditating on God's purposeful creation of little boys and girls, in one sense, there are no unwanted pregnancies. God desires little boys and girls always to be born. God wants those little babies because he purposes their creation. But also notice that God plans out the days of each person. He is the one who knows each and every day of a person's life before there are any 
This is similar to God's words in Jeremiah 1.5, which has already been quoted, but I'll quote it again. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God speaks that and declares that to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, before you were born, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you to be a prophet. I knew your days. God knows the substance of a person's life before he or she is born. And so considering God's planning that is involved in the birth of each little boy and girl, there are no unplanned pregnancies. God plans them. God plans the lives of each person who is born. And so David now turns to consider God's thoughts towards him. We see here, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So David considers God's thoughts precious. He cherishes all of the thoughts that God has towards him, and he reckons that they are more numerous than the sand on the beach. And every time David awakes, he realizes that God is still there with him. That's the meaning of the, when he says, I awake and I'm still with you. God, David is praising God and reflecting the fact that each and every day he awakes God is there. God sees him. God created him. And God has wonderful thoughts and plans for his life. And David cherishes that. He cherishes God's words. And so, at the heart of our worldview, we must resolve to believe that God is all-powerful. He alone creates, sustains, and determines life. He purposefully and personally creates little boys, and girls. And so before we continue with the end of the psalm, I, I want to use this point to turn towards consideration of abortion again. So how do we respond and how do we think about this topic? Well, as I said earlier, we do live in a broken world. Uh, you may not be surprised to discover that the leading cause of death worldwide is abortion, far more than cancer, heart attacks, stroke, or HIV, AIDS. In 2019, there were 42.4 million deaths from abortion providers. That's approximately 125,000 abortions a day. In the U.S., that means about 22% of all pregnancies end in abortion. Margaret Sanger's feminist ideals and eugenic policies that, that started Planned Parenthood is something that only Nazis can dream of. Far greater than the Holocaust, abortion is perhaps the deadliest, most horrific genocide that this world has seen. Yet where is the cultural outrage? Why are people not offended, not more offended? Is our culture and society so hardened towards these realities that uh, anything on biblical ethics doesn't matter? Well, sin and rebellion have a terrible way of degrading our society. And we see that today in our own but how do we as Christians understand these things? How do we look at these facts and, and what do we do with them? And when we look at our society, how do we live? Well, so how do we understand abortion? First, it must be clear that abortion is never supported by Scripture, not at any time or any circumstance. This should be clear from our text today, but if it isn't, consider these passages. God identifies himself to Isaiah in Isaiah 44.2, as the Lord who made you, who formed you, 
from the womb and will help you. Job describes his birth this way. You, God, clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. That was Job 10, I think 11 and 12. I forgot to put it on the slide there. But the same word um, uh, translated baby in Luke chapter 1, verses 41 and 44, to refer to John the Baptist in the womb is the same word to describe baby Jesus in chapter 2, verses 12 and 16, lying in the manger. You see, in the Bible time period, the word baby meant baby, either in the womb or just born. (laughs) It's also true for the Old Testament term, the, the Hebrew term for children. You can see that in Exodus 21, 22 through 25. So secondly, uh, well first, that, that is a biblical argument. There's passages that support this line of thinking that would condemn abortion. But secondly, there's a theological argument to be made. I'm greatly indebted, indebted to Jim Hamilton's essay, What Are We For?, in the book, The Gospel and Abortion. In it, he writes that the inner logic of the Bible is that God is for his creation. To catch that, God is for his creation. Hamilton writes, Quote, the Bible's logic is simple. Since God made the world, everything belongs to him. And the fact that he made and owns everything further grants him the right to make the rules. You see this in Psalm uh, 21, 4. Quote, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Because this is true, God is the sole author of life. He alone determines the boundaries of taking life, not you and I, not you or I, or any congressman or president. But God is not, uh, is not only for his creation, he is also for his crowning glory of creation, that is, people. God has created each person in his own image. Because we bear the image of God, we are valuable, full of worth and dignity. The same reason why we are against murder, racism, euthanasia, sexual abuse, domestic violence, And so on is the same reason we're against abortion. Because God is for his creation and for his image bearers, we must be people who recognize the value and dignity of every person, even the most innocent among us, the unborn. So how do we engage the culture? How do we engage people? So as believers who recognize the value and dignity of people made in God's image, How do we engage culture generally and people specifically? Well, um, in an article titled, quote, Ordinary Christians Will End Abortion, Tim Counts, a pastor in Vermont, lays out eight ways I thought were very practical. Um, Four of them, I think, engage the culture predominantly, and the other four, I think, engage people predominantly. So, four ways. Pray. Very simple. As with anything, uh, any spiritual endeavor that we do here at Lucy, we need to pray. That should be first. As with any matter, let's take our concerns to the God who cares about them. First Peter 5, 7. Cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. And just like with any spiritual endeavor, we must pray. Secondly, we study the scriptures. Take the scriptures that are mentioned today and look at them later. Study them, meditate on them, and meditate on how God cares for his creation See in Scripture God's love for people, both born and unborn, regardless of age. 
Three, share scripture in your story. Be equipped to have scripture settled in your heart and ready on your lips. Make sure you're able to share God's concern for life and the hope of the gospel. Fourth, go testify, write, and visit your legislatures. Uh, Tennessee legislatures are currently working through SB 1236, a so-called heartbeat bill. Um, it has passed the House, but it's been working through the Senate. Um, the Tennessee Baptist Convention has a, uh, a, a campaign that they've been going on for a while called I Stand for Life. I'd encourage you, go to TBC's website and look up I Stand for Life. That way you can learn more about this bill and Tennessee's involvement in standing for life. Um, those are some, a few ways that we can engage our culture. Again, the gospel changes everything, and it changes the way we live as Americans and as Tennesseans. But how do we engage people? Well, a couple of these things, again, have been, uh, been suggested, but support local crisis pregnancy centers. Amen. <laughs> so we've heard about several ministries this morning, and some of which we directly support, such as confidential care. Consider not only supporting them financially, but maybe personally. See how you can get involved. Or at the very least, pray for these, uh, these ministries. Secondly, get involved with foster care and adoption. Consider adoption, foster care. Um, it's not something to be taken on lightly and certainly seek out counsel, but maybe pray and see if God would lead you in that direction. We are to be pro-life at every stage of life, not just after or just until they're born, we need to be pro-life after they're born. Third, minister to women who have had abortions. I'd be incredibly naive to go into preparing this text thinking that we are all sterile towards abortion. I, it would not surprise me if uh, there were maybe even women here who have had an abortion or men here who have counseled women to have an abortion, or women here who had friends that had had an abortion, or men here who had had female friends that had had an abortion. I think we've all been marred, and we all have stories about people um, interacting with abortion. And as Barb said, abortion affects the whole of a person. It doesn't just take the unborn's life, it affects the mother. And so we want to be deeply compassionate to women who have had abortions. Do you know someone who has had an abortion or someone who's considering it or, so, or even someone who survived an abortion attempt? These realities leave deep wounds on people. Give them the hope of the gospel. They will, find, they will not find hope anywhere else. And then fourth, which follows with this, remember our duty to love. Let's be unwaveringly committed to what scripture says. And I've been very strong up to this point um, in denouncing abortion. But let's also be compassionate. We must balance boldness with winsomeness. It's common in our culture to degrade good dialogue and conversation with ridicule and name calling. Let's rise above this and demonstrate a sharp convictional reasoning with a hearty, warm compassion. After all, these are people made in the image of God marred by sin, broken, lost, far from him. We are to give them the gospel and give them the hope that comes in the gospel. There are undoubtedly more ways to engage with the culture and people on this issue. This is enough to help get us started. Lucy Baptist, let's be marked 
by clear teaching and hearty compassion. And so as I've said before, we live in a broken and confused world. And as we engage people, we must realize that people are broken and marred by sin and shame. A case in point is um, a poet um, by the name of Layla Josephine. She, she writes a spoken word piece called, I Think She Was a She. It demonstrates it very well. In wrestling with her own abortion, she profoundly recognized that, recognizes that she was carrying her child and at the same time is unabashed about her abortion. She writes this. She could have been born. I would have made sure that we had a space on the wall to measure her height as she grew. I would have made sure I was a good mother to look up to, but I would have supported her right to choose, to choose a life for herself, a path for herself. I would have died for that right, just like she died for mine. I'm sorry, but you came at the wrong time. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. <laughs> Josephine in her poem captures the brokenness of abortion and the brokenness that it causes people. She knows exactly what it is. It is the taking of, of life. And although this poem is penned as a pro-abortion manifesto, she tries to process the pain and grief by defiantly declaring that she is not ashamed. Unfortunately, that leads to a broken life. And that is not enough. She continues, I had to carve down that little cherry tree that had rooted itself in my blood and blossomed in my brain as a responsibility that I didn't have the energy or age to maintain. The branches casting shadows over the rest of the garden, the bark causing my thoughts, my heart to harden. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. It's a hollowness that feels full, a numbness that feels heavy. My heart breaks for this woman. She's broken and marred by sin's effects. There is no hope in the world for advocates of abortion. Science does not provide, no, it does not provide any hope for a pro-abortion advocate. The removal of religion in the public square provides no hope. Pro-choice legislation is no hope. The only thing that remains for abortion advocates is the hardening of their heart which in the end shows to be extremely destructive to the soul. But the only hope for any of us considering these matters is the gospel. It is there we find hope for the abortionist, the mother, and the child. And so finally we get to the heart of the matter, the gospel. And so if you have your Bible still open, turn to Psalm 139. You'll notice that David ends the psalm with two ways of living. And he does, this is where it becomes imprecatory. That is, he, he prays to God that he would cast judgment. He first speaks of God's enemies, wicked men that hate with a righteous, uh, wicked men that David hates with a righteous anger. He pleads that God would judge them for their wickedness. And if that language scares you or confuses you, notice that God is not, God, or David is not asking God to take uh, his offense, but rather David is taking God's offense. David's harsh language here is not because people have offended him, but because people have offended God. And so he speaks uh, with a righteous anger. Well, that is one way to live, rejecting God and his word, living life your own way. And many abortionists and abortion advocates live this way. They are unconcerned with God's ways and his word. And they're only concerned with building their kingdoms, enacting their laws. And as David describes, there is no hope for those who live this way, only judgment. 
But there is a second way to live. Praise God that David pleads that God would search him and know him, that he would be tried and led into the way everlasting. David's desire is not to establish his thoughts on morality, but God's. His desire is to live in God's ways under God's word. And this reflects the hope of the gospel. The gospel totally changes the way we live. It changes our hearts to reject our thoughts and our morality that do not embrace God and to embrace God and what he says. The gospel involves the repenting of sin and trusting in Christ. And let me be abundantly clear, abortion is not an unforgivable sin. Not in any regard. God is able and willing to save the abortionist and the mothers who have had one and the mothers that were considering it. Anyone can come to God, repenting of their sin, trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross and be both fully known and fully loved in the gospel. And after all, this is the message of the Bible. In Genesis 3.15, God promises that a baby would come crush the head of the serpent. And in Matthew 1.21, we see God fulfill that promise to save his people from their sins with the birth of the baby boy, Jesus. And in Revelation 12, John paints a dramatic picture where the ancient dragon, the same serpent from Genesis, threatens to destroy the baby boy that would rule the nations. That baby is Christ and Satan's plans, just as all throughout scripture, is thwarted. And redemption wins, all because a baby is born. The gospel provides hope for everyone. And so if you're here and have had an abortion, come to Christ Look to him and find forgiveness for your sin. If you're here and you counsel a a woman to have an abortion, come to Christ. Look to him and see full forgiveness. And although scripture speaks little on this subject, I am persuaded that God is for the unborn who perish in the womb. And I believe God will receive unending praises in heaven from both mothers who have had an abortion and babies who were never born. This is the power of the gospel. It provides hope for all men and women, as well as little boys and girls, both born and unborn. Let us be people who think deeply about this subject and consider it more. If you found this message helpful, check us out at lucybaptist.com where you can find other resources or learn more about our church. We hope and pray that this message has helped you grow in your knowledge of God and in your relationship with Him.